Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. It is Friday, and it is 1 p.m. on the West Coast, which means just one thing, that you are listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I am your host, Josh Carter, and uh, Carmen is off this week. We wish her well, and hopefully she's enjoying her vacation out in Europe, uh, and hopefully we'll see her next week with all these amazing stories that she has. Uh, and if you are new to the podcast, welcome, first of all. Second, uh, we want to fill you in on what we do here every week. We spend an hour talking to amazing veteran entrepreneurs and military spouse entrepreneurs doing these remarkable things in in the industry and and imparting some wisdom on you the listener and hopefully you get some value after the end of the hour and I'm usually completely exhausted because I get to just get a brain dump of these amazing folks like Travis Sorensen from Oddball who's joining us this week to talk about his amazing uh, firm and talk a little bit about his background so let's bring him in Travis welcome to the show hey Josh uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, I, I'm I'm really excited. One because you know I'm a fellow California you know guy, but uh, even more so, you're just a great part of the veteran community and a great friend to Patriot Bootcamp overall. And so it's just always fun when I have people that one I know and two that are good friends. And so I am I'm excited to to have you on the show and to share your story with our listeners. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, me too, Josh. So it's always good to hang out. Don't get to hang out with you as much as I'd like to. I agree. I agree. We get to see each other at the end of the month, and I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I'm counting the days with bated breath. Uh, Denver is going to be uh, amazing, so I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I, I know you pretty well, but I, I, my listeners may not know as much as they need to about Travis Sorensen. So we're going to spend a little bit of time first chatting a little bit about who Travis is. So first of all, Talk a little bit about your military service and what was the decision around going into the military in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, wow, it's been a while. So uh, <laughs> I joined the the Army Reserves in, um, I think it was April 2001. So like right before, you know, September 11th. And uh, I joined um, enlisted. Um, I was in the medical service corps. So I was a medical laboratory technician. And, um, yeah, I didn't go to training until January, 2002, um, did some active training and then, uh, you know, demobilized, um, went to college for a year, got remobilized in 2004, um, spent a year and a half in, um, Atlanta, Georgia, or I'm sorry, not Atlanta, Georgia, Fort Stewart. And, uh, and then, uh, got demobilized again and, uh, stayed in the reserves till 2009 while I was kind of like doing college and, uh, doing the reserve time. You said you, you started uh, as an enlisted, though, but did you eventually transition over to the officer side? Oh, no, no. I stayed enlisted the entire did you? time. Yeah. Nice, nice. Sorry, you were saying uh, you a bit about a bit more about your experience. Um, yeah, I mean, that was like kind of the high-level experience um, in the military. Happy to dive into any particular um, you know, area that you wanted to chat about. But, well, uh, I think what I'm really curious about is just how did how did the military shape who you became, because I know, you know, for me, before I started in the military, uh, it was, you know, Josh was this sort of punk ass kid. And when I got out, I wasn't so much a punk ass anymore. 
I still had, you know, a big mouth, but I, you know, I, I had a bit more decorum, right? And, and the military certainly changes who you are in a way. Uh, and, and what was yeah. it for you that you think uh, was the experience that you had that was that defining moment for you? Yeah, no, I definitely had um, a very similar experience in the military. Um, I, I joined the military mostly because my high school grades were just so, so atrocious. Uh, really needed like something to think, you know, kind of like give me that good work ethic. Um, I'd have to think about it. I mean, the, like the one defining experience in the military that changed me. I, I don't really think there was one. It was just like a, a constant, you know, just like accelerated, like growing up, um, you know. I remember when I joined, um, rather when I got mobilized in, in uh, Georgia, I don't know why, but like, I looked to the side uh, at the last second when I took my uh, military ID picture. Mm-hmm. And so I just looked like such like a doofus, you know, and that was, just, I was so, so happy because, you know, the standard like cat card military picture is very like serious. And I just had this like big smile looking to the side <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it's just like, it's just like a telling thing. Like, wow, 21 year old Travis was like kind of a joker, you know? Yeah. No, that's, uh, and, and I don't, I don't have uh, a, a different experience. My, my experience was pretty similar where, uh, you know, I, I went in because I wanted to get college money and, and got out pretty quickly. Uh, so, so that, that's not dissimilar. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You've done this a couple of times. Uh, what do you think the military did to help you get ready to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'd say there was like two big things that the military gave you is like this work ethic, um, around the idea of just like, you know, you've got to put in the hours. Um, you know, I, I remember when we were basic training, they used to say things like, you know, like all you have to do is try and the army will take care of everything else. Um, clearly that's not true once you get out of the military, <laughs> but, um, you know, just really like the entire organization is built around this like effort of, you know, this this culture of like putting in the effort, putting in the hours, putting in, you know, to make something of yourself. But, um, but I think the other thing that the army really gave you is, uh, just this like never quit attitude. You know, it's just like a really important thing about being an entrepreneur is just this ability to just keep going when things are not looking so great. You know, your, your, your founding partner tells you like, Hey, I want to leave. And, uh, you know, it's not, you got to somehow convince them to stay, or if he does leave, you got to keep going. And, uh, you know, the military really is just instrumental in, in telling, you know, giving you that attitude of like, you know, come what may, like we're going to keep going. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I was Navy. So, uh, you know, every year in December, we have a fun conversation about the Navy beating the army every year in football, but that, but I digress. The thing that I loved about <laughs> the, the thing that I love about the, you know, being in the Navy is that you, you're able to sort of like under, you're solving problems that are small, but it, it, it enables this sort of thinking that doesn't change when you get out. And I'll give you a good example. You know, when in the Navy, I was uh, in deck department, which is essentially just grunt, right? You're just chasing rust around the, the ship and shining brass. That, that was my job in, the, in most of my time in the Navy. After a while, I did navigation. But you know, somebody at some point went downstairs and got this Kool-Aid that we used to drink called bug juice and decided, I'm going to go shine brass with it because I guarantee you it's probably acidic enough to break through this oxidation that's happening on on the brass. And sure enough, it did. And it was better than this Neverdull stuff we got. And so that's the kind of thinking that I think military people bring to organizations or to their entrepreneurial journey is just that, you know, look at this thing right here. I bet you I can make something of use of this small in, in 
consequential thing to make it consequential. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So you're in the military, you're in the army. What other uh, duty stations were you assigned to? Where, where else did you end up going? Um, let's see. I, I spent some time at uh, Fort Sam Houston, uh, which, as you can imagine, a 19 year old kid is a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> really fun place to hang out. Um, yeah, after that, uh, demobilized and then, you know, remobilized to, uh, uh, Fort Stewart. And I did my training at, uh, Walter Reed. Although oh. I drove by Walter Reed the other day in DC. And yeah. It's, uh, it's closed. It's been moved over to the, the Navy hospital. It's all, it's all been combined into one, like, giant facility now. I see. I didn't know Walter Reed closed. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious where they're, I, I mean, it makes sense. Like, they're starting to just sort of combine everything, but that, that was, that's a very historic place. Yeah, no, I did like, I mean, I kind of like grew up at Walter Reed, you know, in a lot of ways. And uh, it was kind of sad to see it closed, but, um, you know, got to save that money. Base realignment and closure. Yeah, I'll tell you how old I am. I actually had gone to Alameda Naval Station in the Bay Area and Treasure Island before it got closed down. So that's, that tells you how long ago it was that I was in the Navy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me about the transition time. You get out, what's the first thing you do when you get out? Do you go, go out and find a job or is it just, you know, entrepreneurial right off the bat? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, entrepreneurship is very a new thing for me. Um, now, most of my uh, early career was all spent in like large organizations. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I got out of college and um, finished the military kind of the same year. Went to the University of Maryland, graduated in 2009 during the, you know, the, the height of the recession. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a job at the, uh, at the Federal Reserve Board. So I worked there for about a year and um, just doing like financial analysis, um, you know, moving data, looking at data, that sort of thing. And, um, and then I went to Accenture to kind of like cut my teeth as a management consultant in DC. Um, and I spent, um, yeah, I spent a little bit over a year there, about a year and a half at Accenture before moving on to, um, uh, business school. But, uh, but the big moment for me, uh, kind of like really realizing that there, there is like another opportunity and there's another option other than just working at these large organizations, like, you know, the army, Accenture, those kind of places, um, I was working at Accenture in 2012, in like January 2012. I got into business school and I decided to just quit Accenture and work um, just odd jobs between January and August of 2012. And uh, I I'd scored really well on the GMAT, which is like the SAT of the of business school. And so I started tutoring. Um, for a company and on my own. And uh, I ended up making like more money as a tutor than I'd ever made as a management consultant. <laughs> and nice. uh, I just realized like, Oh wow. Like this, you know, this was like kind of like the beginnings of what people would call it the gig economy. And you know, i just like kind of doing odd jobs. And I also, um, I remodeled my mom's house just as like a, a part-time kind of like fun project that I enjoyed doing. And so when I went to business school, while everybody else was, you know, focused on getting, into internships and working for large consulting companies, I kind of really had this attitude of like, I've been down that road. I don't want to go again. I want to get into entrepreneurship, but I don't exactly know how to do it. And, uh, and that was kind of the big journey of, of mine during business school, figuring that out. So you, you did really well in the GMAP. You found these people to, cons- to, to tutor, to have them do well, but you weren't sure how to do entrepreneurship without realizing you were already doing it. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> it, it was a weird thing. <laughs> it, it, I didn't actually realize like that, that basic model of, um, you know, like trading labor hours for money is, is like pretty much what oddball does now. Yeah. Um, obviously in a more sophisticated way, but, uh, but yeah, it's like, you know, you have a skill that's valued. You can, you can just do that. <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, is like, there's skills that, uh, I mean, there's just so many ways to do that. I and mean, we're working with a guy right now at our company. He, he implements this uh, operating system in businesses called the entrepreneur's operating system. And, you know, obviously like this is a pretty high end skill, but he makes like, he just makes a lot of money just going around talking to businesses and helping them implement this, this operating system. And, you know, there's just like so many examples of this. Like, you know, we had a, we had somebody who helped us um, do our first retreat and she's, uh, you know, she's doing the exact same thing. It's just like, she's got a skill. She can organize retreats for corporations and she has a client list and you know, it grows and, and she just has that freedom. That's awesome. So, I want to get into oddball because I think it's it's really remarkable. But I want to also kind of tie the ends here, right? I want to understand the path that led from sort of consulting and tutoring uh, for folks that are that wanted to do the GMAP, but also get to like that in between piece. So, what was the sort of that driving force that led you to that next step for you? What what was the what was that next step? Yeah, I mean, mostly it was uh, like continual failure, basically. <laughs> Um, you know, during Welcome the, school, to the club. I, right, exactly. Um, yes, I'm, I'm going to try to remember of this club. Um, but yeah, so during business school, I, um, I, I wanted to start a, a business. I wanted to start something. And most of the ideas I had were around product. And uh, I don't know if it's like my particular business school or if it's just everybody, but yeah, everybody wants to be the like... Um, I don't know, like the Steve Jobs. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to be the idea person and no one really wants to be the the business person. And I think that, you know, for me, I was coming up with these ideas and they were mostly bad. Um, tell you like let's see, some of my, some of my all time greatest bad ideas. Um, so when I was working uh, remodel my mom's house, I remember I was installing all these lights one day. And, uh, <laughs> and so like my, you know, my forearms are getting really tired because I'm twisting all these wires together with a wrench. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, if only there was some way, to not be tired twisting these wires. And I just like came up with this idea in my head that I thought was worth like millions of dollars. I was like, oh, I'm going to have this wrench that's like, uh, you know, as opposed to twisting, it's like a squeeze motion. And then, you know, the thing comes down and clamps the wires and twist it around. And, and I, you know, I, I followed this down for a while and I talked to engineers and everything. And then, uh, you know, somebody, finally, I, I talked to like the rapid prototyping lab at the University of Virginia. And they're like, we can build this for you you know, you got to put in like $50,000 or some ridiculous number like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and finally someone said, Hey, what have you talked to an electrician about this? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I don't <laughs> want them to steal my idea. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and finally I spoke to an electrician and they were like, well, we don't really twist wires anymore. Like, you know, those little like plastic caps, we just kind of put them together and like put the cap on the end of it. <laughs> and it was just this like devastating moment for me because I'd been spent, I'd spent like three or four months like designing this and talking to people. And, you know, it was really, I just could have had this one, conversation with somebody who was an expert in the field and it would have, you know, it would have led to this, like, Oh, this is actually a really bad idea. You shouldn't do it. Um, and I have like a bunch of product ideas around that, like, a, you know, like a, a holder for an asthma clip and, you know, and it kept running into these same kind of problems. And so, um, what I realized was that I'm not the, like the idea guy, 
Like, I'm not the guy who's going to come up yeah. with the, the amazing product that's going to change the world. I'm the guy who's going to run a very simple business that's, you know, that has been done a hundred times, which is like what I've always, it's a, it's a service company that, you know, builds quality software, but you know, there, there are, there are other companies out there that are doing the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. You found a solution before the problem. Oh yeah. The solution in search of a problem. That yeah. is a, uh, that is the death, the death of many of an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Hey, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to pay a quick bill. Is that cool? Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So today's episode of the Veteran Founder Podcast is brought to you by a publicized, deconstructed PR subscription service which genera- generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize broken down PR into modular setup, keeping quality high and simply charging fees for the targeted PR you require. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. We were talking to Travis Sorensen and Oddball. He was just telling us about what you shouldn't do, which is create a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. And we've seen that before in, in other things. So you were telling us about that. Uh, so what was that What was that next step for you? After you decided that you weren't the idea guy, what was that next step for you? Well, the next step for me was back to the, back to the corporate world. Um, I got, you know, I got a, a pretty high paying job out of, out of business school and I started that job and it was a big mistake for me to join to do that because, you know, I really had this burning desire to, you know, start something. And, you know, it was this moment where I, I spoke to somebody and they said, um, you know, why are you not doing it? Why aren't you just going? And I said, I don't have an idea. I don't have, actually, I'm not ready. And they, you know, I had this big student debt from business school and, and I said, well, here's like a, a fun fact for you. You probably have less debt now than you will ever have for the rest of your life because you're going to get married and you're going to buy a house. And like, you know, America is just like a debtor nation. So if not now, when, when are you going to do it? And um, so I, I went to this job and, and, I, and I stayed six weeks. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I just I had to leave. It was, it was really unfortunate for them. Um, and uh, I felt pretty bad about it. But Ultimately, I just, you know, I, I had this passion and I had to go follow it. So, um, so I moved out West. I said, well, okay, I'm going to get into technology. Um, I don't exactly know how to do that, but I've heard that in California, you know, tech founders kind of grow on trees. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and I'm going to find my, my business partner. And I settled in Oakland, California. Um, this is like fall of 2014. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of like got to work on this. I had, I had another idea that it was a tech idea and, uh, it was basically it was the same problem, you know, but I was just, it was in tech. Now I was, I was, I had this tool that I really liked, which was called linear optimization. And, uh, it was something we learned all about in business school. And I, I wanted to apply linear optimization to solve scheduling issues. And, um, you know, it's just sort of like, there, there really wasn't the problem. I thought that there was a problem. I would talk to hospitals and I would say, you know, how do you, how do you schedule your residents time? And they would say, well, the residents do it and they, they invest all this time in it. And it's a real pain in the butt. And it's, it's actually a really big problem for them, but it's not a problem they were willing to pay for. And right. so, you know, same kind of error went down, went down the rabbit hole in that talked to a couple of different data scientists, talked to a couple of different web developers, talked to venture capitalists. And you know, everybody said the same thing. It's just sort of like, you know, show me the person who's willing to pay to solve this problem. And, and then we might have something, but until then there is really nothing here. And, um, so I eventually gave up on that idea, but, um, I mean, I basically spent like eight months just kind of bumming around Oakland, talking to different people, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists. Um, not a bad place to hang out. I love uh, Oakland. <laughs> yeah. There's worst things in the world, right? Yeah. Um, and 
so, uh, and ultimately I, I decided that like, I, well, I, I, I came to understand that I didn't know anything about technology and I really wanted to learn about it. So I set to work kind of learning the basics of web development and, uh, and that ultimately brought me down to LA where I took a coding bootcamp, which is where I ultimately met my, uh, my business partner. And, and that was kind of the start of Oddball. Nice. Yeah. What, what I, what I love that you said there was, uh, the part about going to VC and learning that their feedback was go find somebody to pay for this and you may have something. And I think a lot of first time founders don't get that. That's probably the the single most important metric that you need to focus on for your business. If you're going to go out there and find funding, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have never found funding. It's not, uh, it's not the route we went to, but, um, I have talked to my share of venture capitalists and, uh, I remember I went to this one meeting with a guy um, in Palo Alto and, uh, you know, it's like he, we were back to back. We met and he was like, okay, well, I've got to go because my next meeting is right over there. And it was the other two guys eagerly waiting at the same coffee shop to talk to the venture <laughs> capitalist. So, you know, it's like there are no, there's a shortage of ideas out there and there's right. a shortage of people looking to, um, you know, to capitalize and, and to really get in, get into the entrepreneurship game. And so if you, if you don't have something that's worth, um, pursuing, uh, it is going to be very difficult for you to, to get funding. No, hundred percent. I agree with that. And, and that's what I tell founders. Uh, you know, I, when I was a founder myself, I had a venture capital tell me this verbatim. He said, look, Josh, if you had three customers one month, five customers the next month and 11 the following month, we'd give you a $3 million seed round right now because they could see mm-hmm. two things. One, they could see that you're iterating on the ability to get somebody to pay right? You can get somebody else to pay, get somebody else to pay. And there's growth there, even if it's incremental, right? Even if there's just like three, one month and five, the next and 11, the next, they're seeing some sort of path to growth. The other is that somebody paid for it, right? A business, I've said this on the program many times, a business is a hypothesis until someone pays you for it. That's when it becomes a business, right? And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't follow that guideline. And they're like, well, if I get 5,000 users on my thing, then that's going to be enough to drive somebody to invest in my my company, and that's that that's fine. I think five to six years ago, but I think that thinking is gone. Nobody's funding ideas anymore. Yeah, definitely, especially as a first time entrepreneur. You know, it's oh, like 100%. in a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. What, what the venture capitalist is investing in is, is you as a person, um, you as a founder, I should say, and yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like you really just have to be able to show that that growth and that um, development, and really just kind of like a basic understanding of you know what it is you're going after. Because I mean, I certainly never learned that. Um, you know, I was, I mean, I, I remember like going around and thinking like, oh, well, I have an MBA. Like this must be something that people are excited <laughs> about. And like, no, they're not. <laughs> not even a little bit. You know? Yeah. Like, no, absolutely. And nobody signs an NDA anymore because nobody's going to steal your idea. It's all about execution, right? I mean, and, and to your point, they're definitely looking at you as a founder. And look, here's the good news. The good news is that if you're a founder looking for investment, um, there, there's plenty of capital to go around. The challenge, again, is just needing to find customers to pay for it and, you know, money and just growing in a, in a way that is is systematic, right? And I think what what the the path that we're going on now is that a lot of investors understand they may they may not get the 10x return that they're looking for and they're starting to be okay with that. 
They're starting to say, I may get two times or I may get three X or four X. And I'm okay with that. And the more we have investors that are compromising and saying, I'm, I know I'm not going to get the 10 X, but I'm okay with getting three X or four X. The more we have investors in the ecosystem that do that, I, I think it's just a benefit to the founders, especially first time founders who are really trying to make a run at this. Yeah. Yeah. That's the 20 X return. That is, um, that's nice. But, uh, yeah, if you can get a two X return, that's, that's also nice. I, I would love it. Right. I would love if I put a hundred thousand in something and get 200,000 back, I'm happy with that. And, and I think, like I said, I think that's the, the challenge, uh, is in the mindset that's changing as the economy changes. So talk to me a little bit about why oddball, what, what was the idea to create this services company? Um, well, there's, there's one more failure story. Oh yeah, let's do that. Before that. Um, yeah, it, I, it, you know, I, I took a long time. That's I took okay. a long time to learn this idea. I, I always so, love a good uh, failure story. I mean, I have, I have plenty of mine, so those are always, they're always learning lessons. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I went down to LA and I, I, I joined this coding bootcamp called CodeSmith and, um, I was like in the first, uh, I was in the first class of CodeSmith and, um, it was a great experience. Codesmith is a great coding bootcamp. Um, and I learned, you know, the basics of web development. Um, and, you know, this time I was like, okay, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I'm going to build a product, but I'm not going to just build something that I think is cool. So I called up my school and I said, hey, um, what is a product that you would pay for? And they said, look, here's a problem we have in the admissions office. Basically, we have... Um, students we have students and we have prospective students and we need to like match them up based on their background and so right now we're just going through an excel document and saying um okay who looks like a good fit for josh you know who looks like a good fit for travel um and it's very manual which is like fine when there's five people but when you have a you know 25 or 100 people coming to visit it's like it takes hours and hours to do this and so i was like all right I can do this. And so I looked up, you know, I talked, I looked up like algorithms to figure this out. And I, I built a web application that was, you know, as good as you would expect um, a 12 week bootcamp grad to build. It, it was terrible, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I presented it to them and I was thinking like, okay, like this is cool, you know? And they're like, wow, this is great. We'll pay you for this. And, um, it wow. was shocking. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, why would you pay me for this? It's so bad. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, but they said but but here's the thing you can't sell it to anyone else you don't you can only sell it to us and uh you know this this just kicked off like oh man this must be something i must right. have something i must be able to like sell this to every business school and so um the head instructor his name is rob he's my business partner so i i, I convinced him to very foolishly quit his job <laughs> and uh, chase down this dream with me he was making like six figures as a coding bootcamp instructor. And I was like, you know, how do you feel about making zero? And, um, and you know, he did it. We, we jumped off and, and we started building out this product. And, you know, like it was a great experience to learn to work together and learn, how, you know, the kind of the mistakes of product development. And, and we made plenty of them. And, um, and I think like halfway through, we added a second product. Like, why would you have one product when you can have two? And, um, and finally, like, you know, eight months later, in the spring of 2016, um, I get, we got our first check from the school and it was this weird moment where it was like, okay, great. We, we finally made some money. Um, and it was 1500 bucks. Like that was it. <laughs> and, uh, it was sort of like, when's the next check coming? And it was like, there's no one in the pipe who's going to pay us 
Uh oh. <laughs> so, you know, it's just sort of like weird come to Jesus moment for us where we realize like, oh wow, we we need some money. Like a business you know, needs to make money. It's just fun to hang out and build stuff. But you know, there's at the end of the day you have to make money. And so that it was that moment where we just said, Okay, well let's let's just shove all of our product ambition. Whoops, you know what, we're gonna be a dev shop. We're just gonna be a services company. We're gonna build products for people who have money to pay us and uh, and that's what we're going to do. And uh, we relaunched as Oddball, or you know, originally we were not led digital solutions, which was the name of my dog. And um, we decided to rebrand. And so uh, we called ourselves Oddball because we said, well, okay, how are we going to be different? Like, what is going to be the differentiator between us and other dev shops? And we said, well, we're going to be engineers who understand the business case for the products that they're building, which is, you know, a little odd. So we called ourselves Oddball. <laughs> which is interesting because that is the exact opposite path I had taken, right? I had a dev shop called Plunk and we did stuff for Disney and Pabst Brew. We did all these big brands and we decided to survive. We would have to be a product company. And you know what happened? We died. We went the opposite way. So <laughs> I think you figured out what we weren't able to, which was to, to go the other way, to be a services company if you fail to be a product company. Uh, so oddball explain it. Yeah. So oddball explain to me what in like your, you know, elevator pitch style, what is oddball? Um, yeah. And basically we are a software, we're, you know, a high quality agile software development shop. If you have uh, a product idea that you want to work on, um, you can, you know, bring it to us and can help you like realize that vision. Um, the kind of the history of our company has gone from working with first-time entrepreneurs and venture-backed startups, professors with grant money, um, and we did that for about a year and a half. And that's, I would say, mostly transactional work, um, mm-hmm. kind of like four, you know, four weeks, one engineer, twelve weeks, two engineers, that kind of thing. And um, from there, we've moved to you know longer-term contracts. So, um, let's see, a year ago, I think we were we were six people, um, and now we're we're nineteen people with. Uh, seven contractors. So we've grown at a, a pretty pretty quick pace. Uh, we're hoping to continue that growth curve. Um, that's kind of my job. So we'll see if I'm good at it or not. So far, if, if uh, you're able to grow from six to 19, I mean, that's that's uh, that's the first hurdle. I mean, anybody that, that has ever tried to start a, a, a company will tell you one of the hardest things to do is to get one person to believe in the dream enough to join you and, you know, like you said, get nothing for a while. So I, I think you're doing a, a remarkable job. Talk, talk to me a little bit about the challenge that you face being a services company versus a product company. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge to, to your business? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge is, is really understanding um, the problem. So a lot of, a lot of like specifically dev shop services companies are started by engineers. Um, and uh, they're very good engineers. They have people who know them and they eventually grow, but they don't really understand the, um, the importance of sales. And so we, we've talked to a lot of dev shops and we've, um, you know, we, we've seen it a couple of times where companies will grow to like 20 or 50 people. And then all of a sudden they lose a client and they have to shrink down by, you know, 50, 80%. And, uh, that's obviously like a pretty big culture shock. And a couple of the companies we've talked to have just said, you know what, like we had this experience, we shrunk by 50% and that was unacceptable to us. So we got out of the dev shop game and we, and we moved into something else. Um, so for us, uh, the, the biggest thing is to really, you know, have the engineers understand the value of the sales team. Um, and so focusing on sales and, 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 and you know, like a, a sales engineer 
sorry, a salesman cannot really develop a proposal uh, in any sort of meaningful way. So it's, uh, you know, it's a constant like asking of the engineering team to participate in the proposals. And I'm sure, as you know, most proposals are things you're going to lose. It's just a, it's just kind of nature of the game. So, right. you know, having a, you know, creating a culture where people understand the bigger picture and understand like the importance of the work that they're doing while also understanding like, Hey, this is a numbers game. We're probably going to lose this RFP. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to find individuals who, who are really like dedicated and, and capable of understanding that big, big picture. So you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges. What, what are some of the things that you've been able to figure out that are working well for you that some of our listeners are also struggling with? That you've, along the way, along these different failures, you've been able to figure out, I'm not going to do that anymore because I've been, you know, banging my head against the wall so many times and I'm not doing that anymore. This is how I've, I've solved that problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the biggest problems is when you win work as a services company, it's this, um, it's this expectation of being able to staff up quickly because, you know, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of just the nature of it that you don't want to, if you're a three person dev shop, you don't want to you know, tell people you're a three person dev shop. You want to have an advisory board and you want to have right. you know, your friends who are also on the website. And then all of a sudden you win this work where you've got to add, you know, three people and they're saying like, okay, who are the three people who are starting Monday? And, uh, that's a tough one. So <laughs> balancing the, the sales pipeline with their recruiting pipeline is definitely a very tough thing to do, but, um, you will pay for it later if you speed that process up. And so, you know, we've had clients, I mean, I just had a meeting today with a client and the whole thing was just talking about, you know, we're wrapping up a project we're on to the next project with them. It went okay, but they're saying, you know, what happened with this engineer? Why did they um, not perform in such a way that we wanted them to perform? And it's like, well, I mean, the truth is, is because you gave us two weeks to staff six people. And so we had to staff it quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so just really like being able to, to like, I don't know, accept the like the early stage pressure mm-hmm. because you know that down the road, uh, you're you're going to have a better time with the client um, if you if you really take that time to find quality individual. And you think, and you think that's something that has been a challenge for you to, to sort of temper that that expectation with the client versus what you guys can deliver, and, and how have you guys overcome that? Um, yeah, it's definitely been um, a difficult thing to find. Um, I mean, engineering talent is just scarce. It's <laughs> why people, yeah. You know, there are companies out there that you know simply add value by finding overseas developers. Um, so finding the right individual for the project, uh, it just takes time, and so that's that's something we've we've always struggled with. And every single time that we have just said, you know what, like we need to staff this role, let's just go ahead and hire this person that we're not 100% on. It has not worked out well for us. Uh, we had one individual who we found was working two full-time jobs. And uh, honestly, like that's not good. Yeah. Um, we had one individual who um, just was sort of like abruptly quit after three months because they didn't really want the job. Um, and you know, it's just it's it's a tough thing. And uh, and but you have that pressure when you when you win a win a contract from the client to say, hey, like I need you to start Monday with all six of the people that you that you could have. Yeah. And you know, you really just got to be honest with them. 
that's 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 great advice. I, I think that's great because a lot of founders. You know, I was just talking to somebody today. There's value in the no, right? If you could say no, it's better to say no than to go in and uh, you know overpromise and underdeliver. I, I think m- most people will agree. And, and what I found interesting, you said something earlier where I had a very similar experience where you you, you sold this this platform to somebody and it wasn't pretty, but somebody found value in it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, what they do is they spend a lot of time trying to perfect what it is that they want to um, develop, but instead of just putting it in the hands of somebody who will give them immediate feedback to sort of craft and hone in on what that solution could possibly be, right? And yeah, I, definitely. Yeah, and I see that. I see that a lot. Uh, so, where do you see Oddball going in the next uh, ten years, five years? Ten years, <laughs> man. Ten years—that's a long time frame. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I, I don't know. I'm a little superstitious, so you know, knock on wood. Um, I, I absolutely like would like to keep the same growth curve. Um, we've had four uh, x growth for the past two years, um, and I hope to continue that. Uh, I mean, by those by those statistics, will will be just unbelievably large. Um, I think probably four X is not a sustainable growth trajectory, but um, mostly more of the same. Um, I think kind of the one of the like pitfalls that a lot of entrepreneurs fall for, uh, myself included, is is just this shiny object syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, um, we've you know we are good at X. Um, so for us, we are good at putting together high quality teams of engineers, project managers, um, and de- delivering on a project. So what if we added a, you know, management consulting practice and like, you know, or, you know, what if we start adding products? And, uh, I think that that is what leads to kind of like er- erosion of quality and erosion of the brand. And, um, ultimately like that's what's going to get people in trouble. So for us, I think, if it's possible, I'd like to just continue growing, um, you know, in the areas that we're very good at. Eventually, you kind of max out there. And because we don't have any investors, for me, that's not a problem. So that's, that's kind of our plan. More of the same. More of the same. And, and if you if you had one piece of advice that you'd give to our listeners, because a, a lot of our listeners, they are, you know, want to be an entrepreneur or they have something they're working on, an idea they're working on. What do you think is you know, maybe the top couple of things that you impart on every founder when you talk to them? I mean, you're, you're, you're a mentor at Patriot Bootcamp, which we love. Uh, but what, what's some of the very common mistakes and advice that you typically give founders when you're talking to them? Well, so what we talked on before around like, like most of the ideas, most of your ideas are bad. And that's, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> You know, but being, you know, being blind to that fact is a bad thing. So, I mean, we've talked to a lot of, you know, it, it is a dangerous game working with first-time entrepreneurs because they've got this idea and they've got exactly enough to, you know, bring it to life and no more. And it's their money. And the idea, like, is maybe not so great. And, um, you know, it's like... Uh, I don't know, at Darden, they, they taught this thing called like uh, effectual entrepreneurship, which is essentially around like two core fundamentals of like getting started, but also making small bets. Hmm. So if, uh, if you're saying, okay, I'm going to make a bet and it's going to be a $50,000 bet and I've got $50,000, 
And if it hits, great. And if not, it doesn't, well, oh well. Um, obviously, that's a very dangerous game because uh, you know it's probably not going to hit. Right. Uh, whereas, if, and, you know, if you, you risk that and you say, okay, well, I've got, um, I'm going to make you know $10,000, $5,000 bet. And if one of them hits, then that's going to allow me to keep going um, or that's going to allow me to raise money or, or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that, that's definitely the, the de-risking is, is good. Um, and the other piece of the effectuation is just getting started. You know, it's like maybe you can't um, quit your job and start a company and have a client all in one day, but you could start talking to people around what it is you're going to do. Like, let's say you wanted to start, I don't know, a dev shop just because that's why I started. Um, and you have, you have the ability to build out web applications where you could start talking to people around, you know, what is it that you need, you know, and eventually you can find a client who's willing to let you work on it at nights and weekends. And so, Hey, I'm going to give you a discount, but the timeline is going to be a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Great. All of those clients, and all of a sudden you're making as much as you were making at your job. So you can quit your job. Um, you know, so like de risking and getting started. Yeah, I think the tolerance too for people that uh, you know need to do this as a side gig for a while is starting to increase, right? I, when when I first started my first business, I know a lot of investors were like, well, "Happy to to talk to you when you're quote all in," right? And I think that concept of oh, <laughs> of being all in is starting to change, and we're seeing some some investors sort of have a higher tolerance for that. Yeah. Yeah. I never experienced that myself, but I have heard a lot of stories around this, you know, it's like when you're ready to quit your job, I will tell you from my experience though, it, it did make it a lot more real for me when my business partner quit his job because yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm stacking debt because I don't have a job, that's one thing. But, uh, when my, you know, friend and business partner, all of a sudden you know, his, <laughs> his wife is saying, Hey, why don't you go get a real job? Um, Travis, why don't you stop filling Rob's head with nonsense? <laughs> Uh, then, it, then it gets real, real fast. Yeah. We're going to pay another quick bill. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So we're going to talk about CPA dudes this time where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. Novel idea, right? They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Been talking to Travis Sorensen at Oddball. Uh, look, a, a lot of founders have different daily routines. I know for me, I, I'll listen to podcasts. I try to eat well. I try to you know do what I can to keep my mental health and my physical health in alignment. What are some of the things that you do in your routine that keep you balanced? Because look, being a founder, it's stressful. It's lonely. It's you know sometimes not as glamorous as people think it is. What what are some of the things that you do to keep balanced? Yeah, that's uh, something I need to be better about. Um, the things I do are, you know, I go to the gym with a friend of mine. Um, I think like structuring your life such that you have accountability outside of just yourself is a really good idea. Um, you know, if your friend's saying, hey, are we going to the gym today? It's a lot different versus, hey, am I going to the gym today? Right. Um, that's one thing. Um, trying to eat out as little as possible. <laughs> or if you, if you, you know, if you are eating out, like, you know, just understand that like you, you can really gain a lot of weight <laughs> really quickly if you're not careful. Definitely. Um, you know, the, the, the founder's 15, as they call it, is a real, a real game. Um, and, the founder uh, 15. Know, but, I haven't heard that, that comment in a long time. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, I mean, the one thing that, uh, that kind of happened to me about a year, well, I guess it was more like eight months ago, was, um, you know, really getting outside my comfort zone. And I, I didn't realize what it was going to be like until it actually happened. So, 
you know, for us, we were, you know, we were cruising along and cruising along and we made some strategic partnerships. Um, and all of a sudden we had this big demand for growth and, uh, and the system that we had for adding people was not basically was not up to the, the scalability that we needed. So we, we had a system that was in place for adding one person. Um, and it worked fine. And it was, just, you know, but when I say, okay, I need you to add five people, uh, it breaks instantly. <laughs> and, um, so we had this scenario where I felt like we needed to add a bunch of people. Our system, you know, our system was broken. The system we were designing was not was broken. You know, the clients that we, the existing clients we had started to kind of like complain because, um, we weren't running it all in, in you know, in a, in a good manner. And it just, it really just brought to life, like, we've got an operating system that works at a certain scale with a certain amount of attention. We've got a recruiting system that, that breaks at a certain scale and we've reached that scale. And, um, all of a sudden I started getting these like panic attacks, you know, and it was just this, um, we had never happened before. It's just a weird thing. And, uh, you know, one of my mentors, I talked to him and he said, uh, running the company is kind of like standing next to a bull. Um, you're, uh, you know, it's like at first you're just standing next to this bull and you're like, oh man, there's a bull here. This is crazy. Uh, I have no idea what this bull's going to do. And so you start saying, well, let me, um, you know, let me, uh, let me start thinking about all the different things the bull might do. And, uh, and let me, let me also start trying to like pay attention to the bull as, as much as possible. And so you, this is like the beginning of burnout, right? Mm-hmm. You think, well, if the bull turns left, I'm going to turn right and I'm going to watch it really intensely. But, uh, you know, if you if sort of just embrace the fact that you're like standing next to this bull and you're outside the comfort zone, eventually you become comfortable with the bull and you're like, oh, there's a bull next to me. You want to add a second bull? Yeah, that's fine. Let's do it. Um, and so I, I would say that, uh, you know, for, for people who are just getting started, understand that like the road is a roller coaster and a lot of, there's a lot of like, I don't know, it's kind of glamorous from the outside, right? But uh, no, you can actually like start walking the road. Yeah, when you actually start like you know traveling the journey on your own or with a partner, it's, it's actually a really scary thing. Um, but that's okay, and it, it actually is like the precursor to um, personal growth, which I think is just like you know embrace it, and uh, you know you come out the other end okay. What I, what I love is that you've you've seemed to embrace the failure as well, and that's the one thing that I had a hard time doing. Uh, especially my last startup, I, I really had a hard time. And, and one of the things that we started to talk about, at least at Patriot Bootcamp and Techstars, uh, Brad Feld is starting to talk a lot about is mental health, right? Being a founder, as I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, is a very lonely journey. You, when you are a CEO or, or running a company, uh, you can't go to your employees and complain about something. Your spouse doesn't want to hear it anymore. Your partners don't want to hear it anymore. So you're really sort of bottling a lot, a lot of this frustration or, you know, angst that you have or anxiety that you have, uh, as a founder, what are some of the things that you've done in your own journey to help yourself get over some of those challenges as a, as a lonely founder? Yeah. Um, I definitely had this experience that you're describing. Um, there's only so many times you can talk to your significant other about your business before it's like, it's too much, you know? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a pretty good partnership, um, you know, we have, we have a complementary skill set and we've really, you know, we were, we were advised early on to really invest in that because when things go badly, you, you, you know, you've only really got that, that to hold back onto. Um, so my partner and I, we go out for drinks. We went out for drinks last night. We call it founders drinks. Um, and it's, uh, you know, uh, Brandon DeWitt over at, uh, over, over Patriot Bootcamp. He, uh, he suggested something to me called burning the bush. And he said, uh, 
you know, like there's all this, or sorry, burning the brush. And, uh, and he, he said, you know, there's all this like underlying tension um, uh, uh, between partners. And it's really important to like have a relationship where you can talk about it openly and know that neither of you is going to abandon the other, but you also really have to get real. And so we started doing this and it's a, uh, it's a weird experience. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, um, but, it, but it's good. But, but outside of that, I think, um, you know, organizations like I, I joined EO, which is the entrepreneurs organization. Um, <clears throat> I was a member of the accelerator program. You know, the accelerator program is, is, is a, an early stage option for EO. Like if you have a company that makes like $250,000 of revenue, I think is the entry point and you join the accelerator program and their goal is to um, grow you to a million so you can join EO proper. And that was just a really great experience for me because you're around all these other founders and they'll come to you and they'll say, Hey, what's your business? Yeah. What's your revenue? <laughs> like they, they really want to know, like, what are the problems you're facing? Right. And it's just, and they have, you know, they have stories around what they've faced and, um, you know, they want you to succeed. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it's a peer group of people who are going through the same type of stuff as you are. And I, I think that's a really important thing. I agree. And we did that something uh, like that here in Portland where uh, I, d- I didn't notice anything that existed similar to that. So we created something called Coffee with Co-Founders because Portland loves coffee. And it was interesting to see how quickly it grew. A crew from uh, the first one, I don't know, five people showed up. Now we have 1,500 people on that on that group. So I think there's a need to really sit down with other people that are going through the same journey that you were going through because chances are they have some input or some perspective that you perhaps don't have. And I think what's remarkable about being a veteran founder is that when you find another veteran founder, the wall immediately comes down because you guys are both already veterans, right? And so that wall immediately comes down. What happens beyond that is just the additional collaboration and the storytelling and just having that bond beyond uh, just being a veteran and or an entrepreneur. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, shared experiences, shared path, uh, and just, you know, just somebody who can kind of understand your perspective and empathize with you. It's just, it's just, it's so nice to be heard. I guess you, you could really just put it as that. But, yeah, uh, no, definitely. Yeah. Feeling isolated. Um, that's real, you know, as a, as a CEO or, or as a founder, it, it's just, uh, you know, this feeling of isolation and it's, it's dangerous. It's not really something a lot of people talk about. Um, so it is important to sort of be honest with yourself and be honest with your peers about it. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's as more people talk about it, I think the stigma behind it will start to come down. And I think as more people start to understand that it's okay to fail, it's okay to feel this way. Uh, you know, and some people, uh, maybe they call it the founder imp- imposter syndrome. Right. And I think that's very real as well. Uh, so yeah, it, I agree. I think it's, it's something worth talking about and something worth spending a little time because, you know, when people look at this from the outside, they think, man, this is great. They see the, you know, the Zuckerbergs of the world. They see the Steve jobs of the world. They see these people that are making, you know, billions of dollars. The challenge is just that that happens to a very small microcosm. You know, there's a very small amount of people that that happens to most people, uh, in, in entrepreneurship fail and they fail often, right? 80% of, of companies fail, most of which it's because founder issues, right? Either they couldn't pivot, they couldn't find product market fit, they couldn't find funding, whatever the ex- excuse is, it's very, it's very, very, it's not as often that it's the product or the business that fails. It's the, it's the people in the execution that fail. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and when we first started, I, I didn't know anything about sales. And I, I like to joke, I still don't really know anything about sales, but uh, <laughs> I seem to be effective at it anyway. Um, I, you know, being open and being humble and being able to call up somebody and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really does open you up to the, the learning. But yeah, the, uh, the, the failure of the, the system <laughs> that you've built is... is uh, something to watch out for, for sure, for sure. And how important to you are mentors in your journey? I, when you, You've been a mentor yourself, but how important is it to find people within your network or outside that, that can be helpful in, the, in your journey? Um, hmm. The most important, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I aggressively seek out mentors um, and, and try to, to keep in touch with them and... Uh, it's the kind of thing where for the most part, you're not reinventing the wheel, right? Like people have faced the problems that you're, you're facing. And so um, talking to people who have been down that road or people who can just help you like get out of your, you know, your mindset and think about, you know, just frame the, the problem that you're thinking about um, is it, just so important. And yeah. uh, so I, I don't know, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of, yeah, going out and finding mentors who are, who are good for you. Yeah, definitely. Where can people find uh, your business? Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, well, so our site is uh, oddball.io. Um, uh, check us out. Um, you know, if anybody wants to chat with me, um, I'm Travis at oddball.io. Happy to connect or, uh, you know, just uh, drop us a line. And, um, yeah, generally speaking, that's where we are. I love that you guys are in San Diego, by the way. I got to make a trip down there. I, I miss and love San Diego. It's it's one of my favorite places. I'm actually moving to D.C. You're living in D.C. now? What happened to San Diego? Uh, well, San Diego. We were actually never in San Diego. Oh. <laughs> we were, we were well, in L.A. I'm still in L.A. now. Okay, but, you're in L.A. That's right. But, Got it. Yeah, but uh, no, we're uh, we're moving over to D.C. Um, to to pursue some opportunities with the federal and the federal space. I can't wait to hear all about it uh, later this month. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you all about it. I'm excited. Travis, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I really appreciate your time. People go check out oddball.io. It's, uh, is, I'm, I'm so enamored with these guys. Uh, they're definitely hustlers. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1, 1 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.